Hey, I'm Steve O'Farrell, co-founder and managing partner at The Royals, an independent Australian advertising agency that's focused on delivering unnatural change for clients through undeniable creativity. Our podcast, Chunk of Change, is where we go deep on the methods and madness required to create the sort of change that you want to see in the world. In the first chunk of change for season two, we're joined by Sam Davey, founder and creative director of Park Social Soccer Company, an initiative that sits at the juncture between soccer, creative cultures and a desire to give back. Park is a force for good that uses football to positively affect the lives of disadvantaged kids. Their offering simple. For every ball you purchase, Park will pass a ball to a kid in need. If you're interested in hearing more, go to parksc.com and in the meantime, please sit back and enjoy our first chunk of change for season two with Sam Davey, founder and creative director at Park Social Soccer Company. Hey, Sam, thanks for joining us on Chunk of Change. Thanks, Steve. Thanks for, thanks for having me. We're back at the ESPY. Back at the ESPY. How good does that feel? It feels pretty good. It smells pretty good as well. It does indeed. It does indeed. Um, now... We're here to talk predominantly about Park Social. Why don't we start there? Because I do want to explore your background. How did it start? Um, what's the brand all about? Park is essentially it's all about leveling the playing field through soccer. So we focus all of our efforts on the um, the, the inequalities in the world and uh, believe that by creating a simple um, football brand. Um, that we can start to um, address some of those things. So essentially it started, um, oh, the the idea started probably about five years ago when I thought up this, uh, the concept of a one-for-one -one football, uh, soccer ball. And very simply, it was um, a, a way of joining, you know, the, the haves and the have-nots of the sport, essentially. And... Um, so, you know, so for every time, you know, somebody purchased a ball, we passed another identical ball to a kid that did not have access to one. Um, and we felt that by doing that, um, we would get more kids playing, playing the game and therefore we would get more kids re receiving the benefits of, of playing the game and everything that kind of comes with it. Um, and at the time of, of, of you know, coming up with this, this concept, you know, we spent a lot of time talking to charities in all sorts of different types of areas about how they use sport and how they use football to engage and motivate and reach, um, inspire uh, youth specifically. And it turns out that, you know, lots of charities do use it um, more than, you know, more than you think and, and to a lesser and greater degree. You know, there are obviously there are charities that are solely focused on sport or solely focused on, on football. And then there are charities that, you know, weave it into part of what it is that they do in, in terms of whether it, they use it as a way to get kids into a bigger, you know, into a, uh, you know, like a, a bigger end goal, which is, you know, maybe financial literacy or, um, you know, sanitation and healthcare and all those sorts of things, or it might be simply, you know, kids in refugee camps with nothing else to do or orphanages and things like that. So really it, um, our feeling was that the football is the global game. It's played by billions of people all around the world um, and it can do a lot more to level the playing field than what it currently is. And that's a pretty big and audacious idea, mate. What, what was it that led it to you in the first place? <laughs> um, I think, uh, well, there was, a, there, was a couple, there was a couple of things, I guess, probably one on a larger level and one on a more micro level. Um, the micro level was um, I'm a father of three kids, so I was having, you know, the usual dad conversations with my kids about them looking after their gear and, you know, that sort of, you know, fell out of a longer-running conversation that... Um, you know, we have with our kids about them appreciating what they've got and being aware of, you know, that where you know where they are in the world and 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 what they have to be thankful for. Um, so that was, you know, sort of I guess the direct inspiration where it was like just saying, "Hey, you don't look after your football boots and you don't look after your footballs," and you know, kids around the world would you know would love to have you know half of what you have, and 
you know, pull your socks up, basically. If only they could inflate the, you know, half a dozen balls that are in my kid's backyard, I think that would help a lot to start. <laughs> exactly. Make a deposit for starters. <laughs> exactly. Um, and, um, and I guess, you know, the, the bigger one was uh, probably kind of dovetails into my, my past, which was uh, a conversation I had many years ago with a guy that I worked with where he, um, he asked if... Um, he asked the question about how can businesses do well by doing good. And, Who was the guy? Uh, it was a, a guy called Steve Jobs. Right. Um, back at my time at, at Apple, um, and uh, yeah, he he um, yeah threw out this question at the back end of a of a meeting that we were having and said, you know, hey, can you have a think about how Apple can do well by doing good? And it was the first time that I'd really been exposed to this idea of businesses being responsible for. Um, you know, creating a positive impact, you know, like up until that point, I think really my, my vision of a business was one of commercial gain, really. Um, but, you know, he sort of, you know, through that simple thought, or simple question, kind of opened my eyes to this notion that, um, you know, businesses have a bigger role to play in society. Um, and um, yeah, it was it was a really yeah, interesting start of this journey, really, which was probably about 12 years ago, 12 or 13 years ago. And because that's a, a really interesting career transition. I mean, previously you were at Apple, most recently or prior to starting Park, you were at Crumpler as head of product and retail and brand. Yeah. How would you describe um, how you've applied your various learnings from um, from those major periods in your career and how have they culminated in, in Park as a brand as it, as it stands today? Yeah, uh, it's a good question. Um, I've thought about this a little bit um, over the years, but I mean, I'm a creative at heart, you know, so I'm a designer. You know, that's what I trained as. That's what I went to university. That's what I, you know, started my career as. And that's essentially how I've kind of, I guess, probably self-identified over the years. You know, if people ask me what I did, I always just replied with, I'm a designer. And I think that... Um, you know, like thinking about that and thinking about where I am now and you sort of think, well, I guess it probably, you know, you know, you'd class, I'd class myself now, as, I guess, as an, as an entrepreneur because I'm starting something from scratch and it wasn't something that I necessarily identified with or wanted to kind of become an entrepreneur. It, it just sort of became the definition of by doing the thing that I was doing. So I think that um, when you sort of think about all the, all the skills and all the different things that you picked up along the way, I think it it really allows me in a startup scenario to 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 have enough um, enough skills in enough different areas to be able to kind of do something like this to kind of try and take on I guess like like you said like a really audacious thought and go well. You know, you know, maybe it's just naivety, quite possibly, because I think that if you kn if you knew all the things that could go wrong when you're going into something <laughs> like this, you really <laughs> you would not do it. You wouldn't do it. So I think it was really the fact that, um, you know, as a as a creative, you sort of this, you know, you have this sort of inter you know eternal kind of optimism that, you, you know, there's, there's an appetite to solving big creative problems. Like there'll be a beautiful solution to this problem if I just think about it long enough and come at it from the right solution, from the right direction. And um, I, I always find like a real beauty in that, you know, when you find the solution. So, so take us, that's really interesting, like take us through that that process, just even just the major stages of the process. So you have this, this big audacious thought of maybe soccer might just be able to change the world and address some of the inequalities in the world. What happens next? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's a, it's a, I think you sort of end up bouncing, or I find that I bounce in my head between really, really sort of granular kind of tactical things that need to happen all the way up to the kind of the, the the pie in the sky kind of you know lofty vision 
And you sort of find yourself sort of oscillating wildly between those two things. And hopefully, I guess, you know, if you're thinking about a sound frequency, hopefully you're kind of reducing those oscillations down <laughs> and you're getting to a, to, a, to a tone or a note that kind of actually starts to kind of make sense in some way. If that, um, I, th- I just think that, you know, I think being a founder, you, that's, that's your job. You, you, you want, you have to be able to hold on to that vision of, you know, you know what, we are going to be a competitor to Nike and Adidas and that's, that's okay. And then at the other end of the scale, you're like, I've got $2,000 in my bank account and what the hell are we going to do and how are we going to do that? Or that we need to, you know, the, the, the website's not working or, you know, we need to ship these products and we've run out of X, Y, Z. Um, and I think that sometimes, you know, you, you know, the one sort of overtakes the other and, you know, you find yourself kind of doubting the vision or, you know, or, or vice versa. And Can you remember the first thing you did to help make it happen? I just, um, I guess just, just started, just made a football. You made you know, a football? Yeah, I mean. How'd you make a football? Um, I, <laughs> this, is, this is hilarious. <laughs> I. I googled like how 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 do you make a football, right? Because you know I was like, well, they're stitched and you know like, but some you know I kind of knew that some of them were hand stitched and some of them were machine stitched and you know some of them weren't stitched and they were kind of you know molded or glued or welded together. But essentially, I I googled how how to make a football and and then led me to YouTube and. I found myself watching this video and it was a tour of a factory in China um, and they were just, it was like a video that had been made by that factory and they were just, you know, literally walking you through the factory and showing you all the different steps in the process. And then I saw on the wall on this factory the, a logo and a name and then I Googled the name and up came this factory website and sent them an email and said, oh, hey, I interested in making some soccer balls um, and, you know, sort of tried to make us sound bigger than we probably <laughs> were. Um, and they replied and then, yeah, I had to come clean and um, tell them that we were just sort of starting up but we had this kind of uh, a bit of a different idea about this idea of a one-for-one ball and that we wanted to help kids and, yeah, they just jumped in. Had you done much planning before then? Really not a lot. Not enough, Yeah, I don't think. It's interesting. I was chatting to a friend of mine who um, started a very successful skincare company that subsequently got acquired the other day and she's um, about to start her next venture. And I said to her, "Um, what's your process for planning? She said, I don't plan, I just start. Hmm. I think think I would agree with that. Like I've, I've, I've never been a planner. Like I'm not a planner in my you know, my day-to-day life, um, I'm, I'm much more of a doer and I just I just get excited about something, I get into something, I start seeing the possibilities of whatever it is and then just start. I'm like, well, that's just, how hard can it be? Like, let's go make a football. Like, you know. Like, and, and presumably your ambitions when you did start were probably a, a bit bigger than that, although making a football is a great achievement. I wouldn't have a clue how to do that. Yeah. What were your ambitions when you first started? Well, I guess... You sort of say whether they were a bit bigger. I don't know whether they were or not. I, I think we. I had this idea. I thought that. Um, I thought that this this idea of a one for one football was a really good idea, and that we could, you know, it, it it would supply kids that don't have footballs or don't have access to playing football with, you know, with something that they needed, and then I believed in that, and then I was like, I think that. There's a really great story to be told on the other side of the coin where we can show people what impact this ball is having and we can tell people where we're sending the other ball and they can get involved in that you know, story. So I sort of felt that like, I think at the time I kind of felt that like that was that, you know, in a way. Like, um, you know, I was like, let's just do that and we'll see what happens and and then we'll sort of take it from there. Um and I don't. I certainly didn't think that you know it was going to be this 
brand that everybody started, you know, sort of getting into, get into and, and 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 kind of getting excited about. I don't know. I think maybe my, you know, my sort of general kind of down to earth kind of Yorkshire mentality, sort of like you know, sort of like keep a lid on it. Like, don't get too excited. Don't get beyond yourself. Like, right. just do the first bit and see what happens. Um, so I think that that's probably where I my head was at at the time. And what about some of the positive change that you've helped create since then? Well, we've we've kind of broken through the ceiling of of of, um, of distributing over over ten thousand balls. So that's congratulations. Really, that's really that's great. Amazing. Yeah, um, that's been a real effort. Um, People are looking up your how to make soccer ball videos on YouTube now. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, um, you know, we've, we've got the balls to about, I think it's about 36 countries now. Um, you know, so, you know, in all, all continents, I think, other than kind of Antarctica. Um, so, you know, in that regard, you know, I think, you know, by our estimations, we've started over a million games of football for kids that wouldn't have been able to do it. Um, and as a, you know, as a firm believer that the more the more kids can, you know, access, you know, the sport and organised sport in a safe um, a safe environment, that the the you know the the better they're going to be. Um, so I think that, yeah, I mean, I, I'm really really proud of what we've done so far. I mean, we're really sort of scratching the surface, and we you know we've got a long way to go. But I think it's um, I think it's a good start. And do you work with partners overseas in that aspect of the business? Do you do you end up partnering with with people who can help distribute and make that positive difference in you know disadvantaged communities and areas of the world that need it most? Because it feels a long way from well here in humble Melbourne, Australia, where all the design thinking in the business is actually run out of. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I mean, for example, you know, here in Melbourne, we might work with a charity that is literally based here in like Port Melbourne. Um, you know, we know the area, we know the person, we can meet them face to face. We can see firsthand, you know, that the fact that they're able to expand their programs and, and, and run, you know, run more training sessions for more kids in more areas of the city. And, you know, you start to kind of see like, oh, wow, you know, like by the fact that they've got more equipment, they can actually now run more sessions and they can get more kids involved. And that's really great. And then when you, um, you know, overseas, you know, we will go and partner with, um, you know, we'll find um, sort of smallish charities that are doing a similar thing that they're kind of, you know, um, engaged in, in doing, in, in running football programs. Um, and we will, yeah, partner with them to identify what it is that they need, um, you know, what's on their horizon, um, you know, where where are they traveling in terms of, you know, expanding programs or needing to kind of, you know, reach more kids or, you know, starting teams for girls where before that they they didn't have any or whatever it might be. And we say, right, okay, well, you know, I mean, it's, it, it becomes quite simple after that. It's like, well, ha- how many balls do you need um, and where do you need them and when do you need them there? And then we, we send them and, and, and that's that. And they know? last for a certain period of time. Yeah. And you can imagine how many or guesstimate how many games of soccer has started as a result. Exactly right. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, like, you know, from our own testing and, and talking to the partners and sort of now that we've got like a few years kind of under our belt and we can, you know, we have a little bit more of an idea of, of, of things like, you know, practical things like how long they last, et cetera. You know, we know that the balls last for about six months and they're used about four times a week and, you know, X amount of kids go through these programs. So you can start to sort of, yeah, calculate the impact and, and, um, and yeah, what, what's possible. Well, my kid's been kicking his around for three or four years now, mate, so that's a pretty good test case in itself. Yeah, the, they the, do last. They do last. The, the Park brand name I have to ask you about as well, you know the power of a, of a good brand name. Four letters. Well-designed and well-executed. There you go. <laughs> Tell us about how that came about as part of the planning process. Yeah. Or the starting process, I should say. Yeah. Um, it was that was a very easy one. I literally, um, I remember just doodling in my, in my notebook at the kitchen table, like right at the beginning, I think probably while I was Googling factories. And um, 
I just kept writing Puck um, as it was the word that sort of came into my head at the time. And for me, it just really symbolizes, um, you know, um, a, a shared, it's a shared community space that is owned by everybody and nobody, you know. It's the place where the, where the play happens and I think that it's really important to acknowledge that and um, and have, I think, you know, for, for a brand that is centered around community, I think the name of the brand needs to reflect that sentiment. So it's not about the performance that happens there or the, you know, the, um, the end result of whatever happens there. It's about just the act of it happening and the, the space that is enabling that to happen. And I think that, you know, from a brand perspective, it's like everybody in the world knows what a park is and, you know, he's, and it, it might be a dirt patch, it might be a lush green field, it might be a concrete, you know, you know, courtyard or a, or a carpeted living room. It, does, it doesn't matter what the park is, it's just a space where you can play a game. Um, and can I suggest it may not always be used for soccer either? 100%. Yeah, you can, you can, you can play all sorts of sports in parks. Fancy that. Uh, yeah, fancy that. Fancy uh, that. So yeah, it doesn't it doesn't pigeonhole us into um, into one particular stream of of sport. Any plans to expand beyond soccer at this stage? Oh look, you know we've had conversations, but there's no serious plans to do it. You know we've we've sort of allowed ourselves to kind of dream and think about you know basketball and. Um, sports a little bit like that that um, sort of share a similar kind of ethos and impact model, shall we say, to football. You know, there's a lot of charities that use basketball in a similar way that they use football. Um, and but like you know, we've got we've got a lot of work to do in the football space to just establish ourselves and. You know, from a from reasonable a, amount of opportunity there still oh, to there's a lot of opportunity of, yeah. and, and there's a lot of, you know, we just need to kind of sort of, you know, simplify and focus and, you know, get our heads down. Make the and, most of it. Yeah. Well done. So I want to talk a little bit about about the difference. You mentioned the word entrepreneur and founder <laughs> earlier. You came from um, one of the biggest, highest profile corporates in the world, biggest brands in the world in Apple for several years, Crumpler. After that, I'd love to hear your thoughts on and maybe just have a crack at describing the differences um, that exist between those types of, for want of a better term, traditional corporate jobs, albeit in very creative industries, versus being the owner, operator, designer, logistics person who's looking up solutions on Google to problems. Um, love if you could if you could expand on that for me. Sure, I'll try. Um, <laughs> um, I think um, well, if you sort of think about sort of, you know, I mean, it's, it's essentially creative entrepreneurship and I think it's an interesting space where I believe that creative people, and they don't have to be, you know, visually creative, but I just believe that creative people have a lot to offer in terms of solving problems and I think that, you know, I've always felt that way and that's what I guess what what drove me to join Apple in the first place because when I joined Apple it wasn't the Apple that it is today it was you know a hardware manufacturing company in the boondocks of of um, Silicon Valley um, you know it wasn't a you know revered brand it was kind of a bit of an odd brand to be honest that kind of sat slightly on the sidelines and people sort of wondered whether it was going to survive or not um, so I think that, um, you know, like making the decision to go there was really me going, well, I'm a designer and if I really think that design has got some value to add to this world, then you need to go and do it in industry. You need to go and do it in business. You can't sit on the outside at an agency and sort of say, oh, well, hey, you know, they didn't brief us properly or they didn't, um, you know, give us the right problem to solve or they didn't do this or they didn't do that and that's why it didn't work. And there was a lot of conversations around that in the design industry at the time, you know, sort of in the, um, you know, sort of late 90s, sort of early sort of 2000s. You know, it was a, you know, the dot-com bubble had firmly burst and everybody was sort of, you know, freaking out and wondering what was going to go on and, um, 
you know, there was there was a lot of yeah, a lot of negativity that was going around that, you know, and and sort of let's not forget that sort of design in itself was a is a young industry. It's an industry that's not been around for for a long time, and you know was sort of boomed on the back of you know the growth of desktop publishing essentially, um, and yeah, there was a lot of I thought sort of navel gazing to be honest that was kind of happening in the industry. So when given the opportunity to actually go and you know, into a company that I felt that was a company that would understand design to us and, and, and give it the opportunity to to kind of go in the direction that I felt it could do. Um, it was, um, yeah, I just kind of grabbed hold of it with both hands and sort of went in there. So I think going into Apple with that kind of mindset, I was really blown away by, you know, I mean, immediately, you know, you put at the table or in a room with, you know, you're 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 like the least smartest person in the room. You know, I mean, it's like, a feeling. <laughs> and it's just like <laughs> you're like, what? Like, I mean, like these guys and girls are just next level. You know, like yeah. the way that they think and the way that they've been taught to think. You know, they're all coming out of Stanford. They're all coming out of these really unbelievable places. You know, and and I just. I just kind of stayed as close to them as possible. and So what did that teach you? What did that teach you most importantly, your I, time at Apple? I think it – and I don't want to kind of – I don't want to use their tagline, but it did teach you to think differently oh, about <laughs> the things that you were – that were in front of you. Like Steve forced you to pull apart all the things that – you thought couldn't be done and really come at it from a whatever way you had to come at it from to to make the solution a and a the the appropriate solution that he thought it should be you know so it was like oh you know we can't get you know the packaging to look like this or we can't get it to be this big or we can't we, we, we just, you know, we can't make the windows look like that or we can't, you know, like whatever it was that we said that we couldn't do, he just threw it straight back at us and was like, I don't, you know, I don't care. Like It's representative of the, the best brands in the world. They start from the inside out, don't they? C- correct. Yeah. So it sort of forced you as a person and as a as a professional to kind of, I guess, kind of like evaluate your skill sets all the time and kind of go, crap, I need to be better, I need to be better, I need to be better and I need to find a solution to this. And, you know, it, it forced you to be a, a bit more entrepreneurial and a bit more self-sufficient in, yeah, like finding solutions to problems. It wasn't like you just went, oh, well, I phoned up Bob and Bob said it couldn't be done, so can't be done, you know. It was like, well, let's... If that bit can't be done, let's pull it all apart again and come at it from a completely different angle and maybe we've got the whole thing wrong from the beginning, you know what I mean? It's sort of, you know, you build the car back up and you've got like a couple of lumps that are not, you know, they don't fit anywhere and you're like, God, they've got to fit somewhere and you've got to pull the whole thing apart and start from the beginning. So I think being at Apple, in a way, even though it was a massive organisation, did teach me to be more entrepreneurial in my own thinking. Um, And then you contrast that though, with um, being... At crumpler. At, well, not, not just a crumpler, but even if we just directly contrast it with your, your role at Park, there's got to be some massive changes in that. I mean, the entrepreneurship and the ability to think differently to come up with great solutions to problems, I guess, guess is a consistency. But, you know, the stall that I I remember seeing you at when I didn't know you'd moved selling soccer balls at... Elwood Primary Market is a fair distance from, um, I don't know, the, an Apple store. The Cube, opening the Cube the, Apple store in Fifth Avenue. Exactly. Yeah, a little bit different, a little bit yeah. different budget. Yeah, just a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I think mine was You'd about... you be thinking very differently about your budgets. I think mine was about 80 bucks from Primary. Bunnings. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yes, um, super different and it's really hard... Uh, when you were, I guess I found that when you know when you're at Apple and you've got budgets to work with and you've got teams of people to do stuff, you can say this is the wrong solution, go fix it. Like go figure it out. You go and do this. You go and do that, um, and you can delegate those issues 
on a lot of times and you can you know you can throw some money at it you can get some experts involved you can um and you can yeah find your way to the solution whereas when you're doing it yourself there's you've got to uh, argue with yourself and throw yourself under the bus you know what i mean like and tell yourself that it's not good enough but then at the same time tell yourself that you can do it and that it is possible so you, you you're always having this kind of internal dialogue where you're like you know you find yourself sitting there going this isn't good enough but then you're like i can't i don't have the funds or i don't have the time to change it and then you sort of go back and you're like yeah, but it's not good enough and you're like, where do you draw that line between good enough and just getting on and doing it sure. and then fixing it the next time? And I think that, you know, I mean, if you if you notice the stand that I did have at Elwood Primary <laughs> School, it was a single piece of um, of material with the circles cut out that were perfectly fitted in the soccer balls that allowed them to be suspended in a much more of a different way in which soccer balls had been merchandised before. Genius. So there was something that there was, you know, again, it was like that, you know, finding finding a solution and finding a, a, a different way of doing something, you know, but, yeah. Which continues to be the challenge. You're in the biggest sporting code in the world you're also competing with some of the biggest brands in the world what is it that makes you so audacious as to think you can genuinely compete with them um i think the idea is really good (laughs) um i think it's really simple uh and i've seen the power that it has when you put it in front of people and I've sat, you know, I've, I guess I've been, you know, privileged to sit in, in, in rooms with people when ideas have been discussed and seen kind of the construct of those things and sort of seeing how, how they work and why they work and when they work. And I feel as though this one is, it's a good idea. Um, in my opinion, it's a good idea. And... I've just got to back myself down that road and I might be completely wrong, but I feel as the, I've, I just kind of have to, cause I, otherwise I'm always going to wonder why I didn't. If sure. I, sure. Why you didn't start? Yeah. Why, why, well, why did I Give stop? Give it a crack. You yeah, exactly. I mean? Like I, I think, I don't know, like. Cause Nike, I mean, just to expand on that a little bit, Nike, Nike has its own kind of, I don't know, let's call it an ESG sustainability division or arm called Nike Purpose. There's also Adidas Communities. What's your take on on those two sub-brands, mate? How, and in particular, how is Park perhaps a little different? Yeah, I think that, um, I think it comes down to, um, you know, honesty and transparency. And I think that customers... Um, demand or an, inc- an increasingly demanding that honesty and transparency from brands, and I think that Nike and Adidas have got have had a a history of, um, you know, um, doing things the wrong way. Let's put it that way. You know, they've got a history of of um, you know treating their workforces pretty badly. You know, even more recently, treating their pregnant athletes pretty badly. Um, and um, they, um, you know, they've got big marketing departments. They can cover lots of those sorts of things up. You know, they can, you know, they can, you know, they can say and talk about all, you know, all sorts of things. But, you know, when you actually talk to customers and you talk to people out there on the street, there's, a, there's an understanding and, a, and, a, and I guess an, an acceptance that, yeah, you know, like they are what they are, you know, like that's the only choice that we've kind of got really they're the big guys and they sort of, you know, do what do what they want to do. And I think that if you can put a credible option out there next to them that has a very different story and relationship with its customers and reason for existing, then I think you 
you know, we don't need to capture the entire pie. We just need a few of the seven hundred billion dollar soccer industry. We just need a few of the cherries. You know, (laughs) like we, you know, like, and I think that there's a, you know, there's a, I think there's customers out there that will, um, that will um, value that. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because the context that we speak in. Um, is just off the back of the whole Super League, European Super League fiasco. I was reading some some numbers the other day um, about the average monthly salary in the EPL is £240,000, £430,000 Australian dollars. Um, I think that's per month, by the way. Uh, Manchester United Spanish goalkeeper David De Gea makes a reported £1.6 million a month. Has soccer lost its way? Oh, I think at that level, one hundred percent, it's lost its way. I think the 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 sort of the the top of the you know the top of the pyramid is just you know trying to jettison itself into the you know into the into the atmosphere you know and just sort of lose its connection with everything else that that the sport is. Um, you know, I think that. Um, yeah, I mean it's 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 gone it's gone it's gone bonkers. Maybe the league needs to uh, legitimise itself with the appropriate apparel and football sponsor. Oh, 100%. I mean, you look at the <laughs> French league have uh, League One have just appointed for next season their official ball will be made by Kipster, which is um, a French. Uh, it's the French sub brand of Decathlon stores. Um, so they've gone down a different route than Nike and Adidas for the for the League One ball, right? And they are um, they're making a statement that they want the ball to be a more accessible to community. So you know, I think that um, you know everything that everything that the top of the you know of the top of the sport, everything that they're doing is pointing more and more people in the direction of hey, you know what, this is a bit crazy. You know, we need to rethink this. And, you know, the the incumbent brands have been complicit in that. You know, they're, they're the ones that have been championing the player and, you know, putting the player on a, on a, on a pedestal and, and driving the shirt sales and the boot sales. And, um, you know, they're the ones that are, you know, all about, you know, Fans being fans of players, not fans of the game or fans of um, a particular club, and you know, I think that I just think that everything everything runs its natural course, and I think you know, people are starting to wake up to the fact that obviously you know the sport's in a bit of a mess, and sport in general can do more to help society, um, and I believe that you know. We're trying to create a way in which people can do that just by purchasing the things that they need to play the sport. To play and have fun with, yeah. exactly. I mean, the other the other very influential factor in all of this, of course, in addition to the leagues, we mentioned salaries earlier, is player partnerships yep. and sponsorships play a huge part of kind of brand penetration within the industry itself. You've got some partnerships with the likes of KSK, Honda um, from Japan, plus Lauren James from Manchester United. Tell us yeah. about the role that those um, partnerships play in the brand experience. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, we've got a few more as well. We've got um, – there's a, there's a player here in Melbourne called Alex Chidiak. Uh, there's another player in the US called um, Danny Weatherholt um, who we're bringing into the brand as well. And, um, I mean, what – you know, for us, it's about finding um, you know, legitimate people—not just necessarily influencers, but people that are, you know, really connect with the values of our brand, and they, you know, they have their own flavor and their own spin that they put onto it. You know, like all of those players are uh, impact uh, motivated, but their impacts are, you know, slightly different. You know, like some are maybe more lean into environmental, some lean more into social, you know, assembly more into particular geographical areas. Um, but um, ultimately, you know, what we want to do is find 
you know, find ambassadors and people that want to be around our brand for the right reasons. And, um, you know, I think that we're only really starting to scratch the surface in terms of what role they play. I mean, at the moment, you know, they play a role of, you know, amplifying our messages and kind of, you know, t- you know, you know, taking our you know message and product message and impact message and brand message to their audiences. But you know, going forwards, we want to you know involve some of them in product development. We want to um, you know also potentially even provide those. Um, I mean, we talk about the deficit of um, of salary. You know, when we when we think about the women's game, you know, I mean, um, you know, they they're getting you know their salaries are like you know, five, ten percent of the men's salaries. I mean Yeah. Well, less. Know, yeah. I mean, even less. I mean yeah. like yeah. I mean like crazy, crazy, you know, um difference. And, you know, so one of the you know, one of the massive inequalities in football is that. And it's like how can we, you know, how can we tackle that by maybe providing some of these players with an income Oh, you know, through the brand, you know, can we, can, you know, can they literally be earning money through us and through, through the brand and, you know, rather than, you know, trying to compete on, you know, sponsorship numbers and things like that, there's, there's, there's probably smarter, better ways to do this. Um, and as I say, we're just sort of, you know, really kind of getting started with our thinking in this space. But I think that, um, yeah, there's, you know, there's, you know, there's a lot of, you know, you see a lot of female players that, you know, start to come to the sort of the twilight of their career and it's like, well, what next? Where to next? Like where, where do you go? Which is interesting timing to, to mention women's football actually because the Women's World Cup, of course, is coming to Australia and New Zealand in 2023. It's going to be massive. Very exciting. We're yeah. all pumped. My 10-year-old yeah. daughter cannot wait. <laughs> I know. Cannot I know. wait. I know. Te- it- it's a long time to wait as so, well. <laughs> so Nike, it is a long time to wait. Nike's, particularly in the current context, Nike's got the uh, the sponsorship of the Matildas, I believe. Any plans to hijack it here in your home country? Your newly adopted home country? Yeah, I don't think I don't think we'll be able to get the shirts on their backs at all, but um, I think that deal's uh, already been done. But, um, yeah, no, absolutely. We want to hijack, you know, like some of the conversation for sure. You know, we, you know, we're working on, you know, working on things at the moment that, you know, lead us up to that to that moment, you know, that where we, you know, we can legitimately come out and, you know, talk about the brand in a in a different in a different way to the way that I'm pretty sure Nike will talk about it. Um and I think that um yeah, a hundred percent we want to come out and, you know, ruin the show and do something a bit more guerrilla and I know some people who could probably help you with that as well, mate. Uh, I there's think. A, there's a, yeah, there's a few people that I also know. Yes, hope so. Um, which will also be good timing in the sense that your apparel range, which you recently launched, will be, I'm sure, um, thri- well and truly thriving by then. How how's that experience been for you? Expanding beyond just YouTube videos on how to make soccer balls and the pass the ball project itself. Fifty percent of your profits from all your apparel sold goes to developing countries. Um, tell us a little bit, bit about that challenge and expanding the product range in that sense. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, <laughs> making apparel is, is really difficult. Um, and it's a lot of moving parts, especially when you throw in a global pandemic and, um, you know, issues with shipping and logistics and supply chain and Factories closing down and, oh, I mean, God, God, it's just been... Sounds like a nightmare. It's just been... I mean, (laughs) last year was just a nightmare and, you know, it's getting better now, but, you know, I think the the industry is is still reeling and feeling the effects of it and trying to figure out what that means, you know, I mean, down into, you know, lack of materials and, you know, lack of cotton and lack of... You know, I mean, just so that's a whole different supply chain that you presumably knew nothing about, yeah, or very little about. Before li- you little started. about. I mean, I'd, I'd had some experience of it with with Crumpler, because um, obviously, you know, we worked in soft goods and we had to deal with fabrics and 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 fabric supply and cut and sew manufacturing and um, you know all, all of all of those sorts of things, which are 
in in a way quite similar to to um, to apparel, but it, it certainly also comes with its own um, set of unique challenges as well. Um, but yeah, no, it's it's going really well. The res- the response to the um, to the to the gear has been great. Um, you know, I think people really like the fact that we're doing it and like the fact that we're moving in that direction. Um, you know, I mean, for us, the next frontier is the you know is is technical and and, and active wear. You know, sort of pushing into performance um, wear. Yeah, performance wear. Right. P- p- pushing into into the the actual kit that um, teams play in, professional teams, and then um, and then being being able to provide a, a an active wear version of the brand that um, is is built on the the philosophies of team essentially, you know. So it's you know when you look at you know the active wear brands that are out there in the world, they're all built on the philosophies of of I of the individual and individual pursuit. Um, you know whether that be you know yoga or or running or or the gym or whatever. It's all it's all based on 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 you know yeah, the 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 singular versus what we are trying to you know advocate for is this idea of community and team and um, and it has a slightly different feel to it. it. Has a slightly different philosophy and it turns up and it does things in a slightly different way. And um, you know even though you'll be able to go for a run in our gear and you'll be able to go to a yoga class in our gear, it will stand for something quite different. That's interesting. Ha- expand on that for me a little bit. How does the idea of kind of team influence things for you um, as a designer and as a product owner versus the individual versus the I, which so many of your competition competitive brands focus on? Yeah, I think it, 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 I think it comes, it, it manifests itself in how you devise the system of the gear, you know. So I think that when you're thinking about, so if you know, if you think about women's football and you think about the issues that are sitting in there with regards to their gear, their equipment, their clothing that they wear, is not, you know, essentially wearing men's clothing um, or boys' clothing, you know, a lot of the times because the sizes are, you know, don't work in the men's right. side. So there's. Um, you know, there's this opportunity to actually rethink what a sports kit is for a, for a women's team. Because at the moment, it's just literally a derivative of what the men have always done. And they just make it in a slightly different size or or don't. Just give it to them as it is and say, well, it's a bit bigger, it's a bit, you know, whatever. Just get on with it. Um, so I think that there's this opportunity to, um, yeah, rethink the system of the gear and I think that there's really interesting things that can happen in that. And then obviously the the impact that we bring to the table, you know, when you're purchasing one of our products, you're not you're thinking you're you're immediately thinking about somebody else. The difference else. you can make. Yeah. You're immediately automatically thinking about somebody else. So uh, uh, immediately that that kind of that barrier between, you know, I'm buying this because it's going to help me, immediately you're flipping that on its head and, yeah, it's going to help you, but it's also going to help them and probably it's going to help them a lot more than it's going to help you. Well done, mate. Um, so, look, I'm going to – we'll wrap it up shortly, but I'm going to ask you a soccer-related question. Excuse my uh, my punny approach here, but a good finisher in football, you're a long way from finishing, obviously, but a good finisher in football is able to finish in lots of different ways. Correct. What is <laughs> your ideal finish for Park Social Soccer Company? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a really good segue. Um, I, I applaud you. <laughs> um, you could, yeah, left I worked, foot, I worked left foot right foot. Thank you very uh, much. Yeah. Um, I think, um, yeah, we are a long way from finishing, but... Um, Fundamentally, the bigger we can make this brand, the more impact that we can make in the world. And, you know, this brand was set up to make as much impact as it possibly can. And that is on both sides of the coin. So that is on, on, you know, distributing aid essentially to people that need it and changing those attitudes and behaviours 
of the of the people on the consumer side on the advantage side so um and i think that there is equal amounts of opportunity of impact on both sides of of the ball essentially um so you know you know our aim is to get as big as we can get so i think that as um you know as as we start to grow this and we start to kind of um get more you know rungs uh, under our under our belt um and um i think that the opportunities will will come along and you know that might be that we you know are faced with you know selling out to a bigger brand or selling part of the business to a bigger brand that allows us to get that scale um it might be a you know a, one of these you know multi-billion dollar football club owners that comes knocking on our door and says do you want to be our kit supplier and you know i'll get behind this and you know um you know i've got a philanthropic streak that you know i want to fill and let's kind of do this together there's a few european clubs who are in a bit of a pr crisis at the moment there's that a, could actually help them a lot i reckon yeah there's a there's a there's a definitely a, <laughs> a, a couple of handfuls of them um so yeah i i don't i don't know what's going to happen um i think that um you know uh, it's going it, it needs to get it needs to get bigger we need to get the scale if we can get the scale then we can really start to make a big difference so i think that you know what is the smartest and best way to get that scale i think um i will um yeah i'm i'm open to conversations put it that way well regardless of what the ultimate outcome <laughs> in the end um sam congratulations on everything you've built so far it's a phenomenal story in terms of starting with that google search on youtube all those years ago to um well over 10,000 balls being distributed and God knows how many games of football that have been instigated as a result. Congratulations. Look forward to seeing where to next and thanks very much for joining us on Chunk of Change. Oh, thanks, mate. I really appreciate it. It's been, it's been great. Good on you, mate. Thank you. Thank you.